Okay, we are going to look into John chapter 1, reading from verse 19. The Gospel according to John, reading from verse 19. This is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you, so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, and they said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. And the next day, he saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said after me, comes a man who who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifest to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, upon him this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Okay, so what we see, we had talked about last time, there was a delegation that was sent to John when he was baptizing. And the first delegation that's sent is sent to see, is this of messianic significance? So this was a delegation that came from Jerusalem. They weren't allowed to ask any questions. They couldn't make any statements. They could only observe. And it says they reasoned in their heart and John addressed them, addressed their reasoning. But now, the delegation, another delegation has come from Jerusalem and it says it three times in this portion that we just read. For example, in verse 19. And then, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And then if you look again down in verse 22, then they said to him, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? So this is the delegation has now returned. And now this is now in the second phase because the word has gone out. This is of messianic significance. Messianic meaning this is of significance that this could be the prelude or the Christ himself, the Messiah himself. And so this delegation now in this phase starts asking questions. First phase is just observation. Now the questions start coming. And they say, who are you? And then they say, are you Elijah? Well, why would they say to John, are you Elijah? And that's because in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says that God will send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord, before the great day when Jesus comes. Well, remember, Jesus is coming twice. This was his first coming that we're reading about. The second coming is when he's going to come in all his glory. And, and, uh, and his first coming, John would have served as Elijah had the Jews accepted him at that point. 
They did not accept him. So uh, uh, John said, no, I am not Elisha. Remember, if you read in the Old Testament, Elijah was a man who was taken, who was taken away. He never died. He was just taken up to heaven. And then he will come back because the Bible says it is given for all men to be born once and then to die and then comes judgment. And so Elijah never died. And he was, Enoch also was a man who never died. So, so if you read in the book of Revelation, there are two witnesses that come back. And many people feel that the two witnesses are going to be Elijah and Enoch, the two men in the Old Testament that never underwent death. They just were taken straight up to heaven from earth. But he says, no, I am not Elijah. So it was a natural question for them to ask this. Are you the one who's coming before the Messiah, namely Elijah? He says, no, I'm not. Then they say, are you the prophet? And in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 through 19, it talks about a prophet who God is going to send and saying, you've got to listen to him. So, again, the natural question to the Jewish scholars is, is, firstly, are you Elijah? If he says no, are you the prophet? And he answered no. And then they said, who are you? Give us an answer so that we can tell the people who sent us. And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, in verse 23, make straight the way of the Lord. And that's because in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, so you see, to these people, everything that was going to be done was written about. They took the Word of God seriously. It meant something to them. It was not just, you know, some pie-in-the-sky bunch of generality. This means something. Every word in this book means something means something about who is coming, what's to come, what's to happen. And you see, and they were pegging him specifically on this. It wasn't just a bunch of niceties that are written that, you know, we ought to listen to advice from God for for the world. No. These were prophecies. The Word of God is highly specific. If you don't know that, it's because you've not really studied it. It does not speak in generalities. It speaks with specificity. This is what the Word of God tells us. So he says... I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Because Isaiah, in chapter 40, verse 3, had prophesied that before the Lord returns, one is going to come who's going to be like a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Meaning, as he comes, I want you to have your hearts prepared. Your hearts must be prepared for his coming. This is why he came baptizing. So, So in verse 24, it says again, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So you see that this was an official delegation. It wasn't just, you know, a a bunch of uh, um, uh, priests and Levites. No, they had come specifically from Jerusalem to the Galilee. This is several days' journey. And it's through the Jerusalem desert, which is blazing hot, to go from from Jerusalem actually down, down to the Jordan. And so it's, it's several days' walk. And so this was a specific delegation that had been come. And so they had to report back. And so they wanted to know. So in verse 25, they didn't quite understand. It says, Then they asked him, and they said to him, Why are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? In other words, you're, you're none of these three. Why are you baptizing? John said, answered them and said, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. This took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. So this is in Bethany. Now there is a Bethany that is right near Jerusalem. You will read about this. Jesus used to like to stay 
in Bethany. He didn't like to stay in the big city, so he'd often, when he was in Jerusalem, he would go to Bethany to stay. But there's a Bethany that's right by Jerusalem. There's also, also another town, Bethany, that is beyond the Jordan. So it was actually on the other side of the Jordan River. You say, well, how'd they get from one side of the Jordan to the other? Jordan River is not like, like the Mississippi River. The Jordan River is a, is a stream by any American standard most of the year. Except in the rainy season, it is it is uh, it is a glorified puddle that <laughs> runs from the Galilee, from the Sea of Galilee down into the Dead Sea most of the year, uh, and so it's really a rather small stream. It can easily be forded uh, um, at many places, except except in, in the rainy season. So to be on the other side, it's no no problem to get across this, and so this is the Bethany that they're talking about. And he says, standing among you is one whom you do not recognize. In other words, Jesus had already been revealed to John. Jesus had been baptized by John. He saw the Spirit descending upon him. John knew for sure, this is now the Christ. So Jesus was standing there that day amongst these priests and and Levites. And he says, one is standing among you whom you do not know, but it's him whose thong of his sandal I am not worthy to even untie. Jesus was standing right there in their midst, and and John wasn't pointing him out specifically to them, but John recognized it. And remember, John baptized. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. Actually, this is clarified for us. Again, let's look at this in, in, uh, in in Acts chapter 19 in the book of Acts. Paul talked, spoke about this in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, verse. Um, Acts chapter 19, verse 4. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is Jesus. So John had a baptism of repentance, saying, Repent, be baptized. By doing this, by repenting, you will be prepared for the coming of Jesus. And John's baptism was this. He said that as you're baptized, you're committing to whoever John points out as the Christ, you will believe in him. And that always happened. Everybody that heard, that, that, that had been baptized by John, when they saw Jesus, the Christ, they believed on him. John's disciples readily believed upon Jesus. And this, this portion that we just read in the book of Acts was about 20 years later. There were some people that had gotten baptized, left the area. They had never even heard that the Christ had come. Paul meets them 20 years later and says, you know, this is the Christ. This was, it, it, the Christ has come. The Christ has already suffered and died. And immediately they believed and they received. So this is what John's baptism was about. It was a baptism of repentance to prepare them for the Lord. And in verse 29 of John chapter 1, He says, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, why would he call him the Lamb of God? What does this mean? Well, in the Jewish context, scripturally, this is what it meant. There were two lambs in the Old Testament. One was the Lamb of Exodus chapter 12, which was the Passover Lamb, the Lamb that was sacrificed. Another is the Lamb of Isaiah chapter 53, which is the Messianic portion. That portion, if you read the end of Isaiah chapter 52 and all of Isaiah chapter 53, that is a striking picture of the life of Jesus. And you can give this 
to a Jewish person, and being a Jew, I know this, I've done it many times, you can take this portion, and you can read this portion from the Old Testament, the end of Isaiah chapter 52 and all of chapter 53. If you just read this portion to a Jew and you say, who do you think I'm reading about? And they'll say, oh, you're reading about Jesus from your New Testament. No, it is actually Jesus from your Old Testament. It is such a striking picture of the suffering and the life of Jesus. And in there, it refers to Jesus, it refers to the Messiah, the one who's coming as the Lamb who was led to the slaughter. So within the Jewish context, within their mindset, this is not some, oh, wonderful little Lamb that you're going to stroke. No, this is clearly the Lamb of, of, of uh, Exodus chapter 12, the Lamb of the Sacrifice, and also the Messianic Lamb. That's what there was in the Jewish context when they spoke of the Lamb of God. And it says, and he takes away the sin of the world. And, and then he starts saying, this man has a higher rank than I, in verse 31, I didn't recognize him. So Paul, John himself says, I didn't recognize him until the Holy Spirit came upon him. Because God had told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend in bodily form. Remember, it wasn't just some fuzzy ghost or something. The one whom you see descend in bodily form, appearing as a dove, that is the one who is the Messiah. So Paul, John says, I didn't recognize him until I had seen the Spirit fall upon him. And John testified and said, I, in verse 32, I've seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and it remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy, in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. What I want to focus upon is a particular verse in this passage. It's this verse, 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John prepared people's hearts to receive this Lamb of God through baptism. Through a baptism of repentance. Through a baptism of repentance. This thing that we have as believers, as Christians, is not had in any other religion. That sin can be lifted off of a person. That there is one who takes away the sin of the world. If you, if you look in, in, uh, in, in um, Acts chapter 10, the book of Acts chapter 10. This is the house of Cornelius. The house of Cornelius, this was the first home of Gentiles meaning non-Jews, to whom the Gospel came, to whom the Holy Spirit came. So up until Acts chapter 10, if you read through the book of Acts, it's the development of the church. Everybody in the church was a Jew. Everybody in the church was a Jew until Acts chapter 10. Sometimes people will say to me, I think it's so amazing that you as a Jew could believe in Jesus. And I'm like, I think it's so amazing that you as a Gentile believe in Jesus. Because it's so Jewish. If you look at the book of Acts, the formation of the church, everybody was Jewish. There were no Gentiles in it until Acts chapter 10, which is years and years into the church. There's still no Gentiles until Acts chapter 10. So the amazing thing is the Gentiles received Jesus, even though they didn't have the basis that the Jews had in the Old Testament to testify of Him. That's miraculous. This is God coming down and speaking into men's hearts. So here is this man, Cornelius. 
Here it is in his house. Peter is told by God to go and witness in the house of Cornelius, this Gentile. And this is a huge deal. This is really a big thing. Because there was no model for this. It had never been done before. It wasn't in their mindset that the understanding of the gospel could come upon the Gentiles. And it was a dangerous thing. It would be as if you were called to go preach the gospel in, in uh, Saudi Arabia. Right? It's a dangerous thing. Now, people are called to do that. But it's a dangerous thing. You don't know what's going to happen to you. So he goes down there and he starts speaking. And it says, and he starts to speak and he starts giving this discourse. And we'll pick it up in verse 38. You know, this is in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all these things that he did in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the men, but to the witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that this, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead, and he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. I want to stop right there and reflect upon this verse. This is utterly extraordinary. Everyone of him, in verse 43, all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Why? Why should it be so simple that I just believe upon him and I receive forgiveness of sins? This is too good. This is too kind. You mean that I don't have to take a chain and beat myself over the back? I don't have to walk around despondent and rejected and, and, and do a hundred good works and be really good for like a week straight without sinning in order to be forgiven of my sins? It says everyone who believes in His name receives forgiveness of sins. If you could take that and make it a part of your understanding that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins. There is no other religion that has this. Nothing has this. Jesus has done this. Jesus has provided the way. In your life, let me give you a, a, a snapshot of your life now and what it will become. This is a snapshot of your life. You will go about trying to do good for God and failing over and over again. Let me be more specific. Sometimes young women do some things that they wish that they had never done. They'll get involved in sexual things that they wish that they had never done. And they'll, they'll feel violated and they'll feel like they, they caused their own selves to be violated. And they, they feel that they could never go on like this. And I want you to realize that he who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. There are struggles that young men go through where they want to live for God, but they keep blowing this and keep doing things that they wish that they had never done. And that's why Paul says in the book of Romans that the very thing that I wish that I could do, I don't do. And I end up doing the very thing that I don't want to do. 
And then if you are a young man, and you struggle like all young men, like the vast majority of young men, in the area of, of sin of the mind, sin of the eyes, and sin of the flesh, then you will understand how glorious a thing it is to those who believe that through Him, everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins. You believe in Jesus, you receive forgiveness of sins. This is a remarkable thing. I can remember, as a college student, wanting to live for the Lord. And I would so blow it sometimes. And I would get alone and think, God, how could I ever go on with you? I mean, just my, my life. I mean, I just keep blowing this. The things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. The things that I don't want to say, I end up saying. Sometimes I can be so mean and so hard. And it says, whoever believes on Him receives forgiveness of sins. Do you see how remarkable a thing this is? How gracious a thing this is? That behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It doesn't say you have to be good for at least a week before I receive you into my presence. It doesn't say that. You know, out of my failure, I can have relationship with God. Because whoever believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins. This is so good. I'll tell you, you know, there, there are some people who just struggle with homosexuality. I mean, just struggle with this. And, 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 and keep messing up and keep failing. And I keep having to say that, remember, he who believes in Him has forgiveness of sins. Now, how do you receive this? John says the way you prepare your heart for the Lord is through repentance. He came, he preached the baptism of repentance. Repentance is, Father, I am sorry. But it is more than just apologizing for our sins. Repentance means to turn. Father, I turn this day from my sin. Father, help me that I don't turn back again in the wrong direction. And then when we stumble again, Father, forgive me. And I turn. Father, I want to walk in the right direction. Father, help me. I am telling you, this is a picture of the life of believers. If you think that you are unique in the sin of your mind, in the sin of your eyes, in the sin of your flesh, that you are unique among believers, you are wrong. The one who is unique among the believers is the one who doesn't understand what I am talking about right now. They are the unique ones. If you can identify with what I am talking about, you are the average everyday believer. And this is, God said, that I have chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, the base things of the world and the despised. I have chosen the things that are not, that are not, that I might nullify the things that are. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God has chosen the base things of the world and the despised. He has chosen the things that are not, that are not, that He might nullify the things that are. He has chosen these things. So, He chose you. He chose you. If you think that, oh, I really came to God, you know, I'm doing God a favor, trust me, He opened the door for that. That while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. He chose you. He chose you in the state that you are. And He wants to call you to something greater. This is an, an amazing thing. Now, 
You say, okay, now these people who hear this message, these Gentiles who hear this message, are going to have to say something really profound, or say something really great, or make some great confession, in order for the Holy Spirit to fall upon them, in order for them to be saved. Well, let's see what happened. Peter preaches this message. The message just started in verse 34 of Acts chapter 10. And his message ends in verse 43. So you got from 34... To 43. Nine verses are Peter's message. That's it. You know, you've heard it said that there's no such thing as a bad short sermon. I mean, this guy, just nine verses, that's it. He probably wanted to go on, but he didn't have to. Because in verse 44, here's what it said. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers, that means the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they... And Then they asked them to stay on for a few days. Okay, so here Peter is speaking. He's only nine verses into his sermon. And while he's still speaking, boom, the Holy Spirit falls. What was it that he said? He said, whoever believes on him receives forgiveness of of his sins. And the Holy Spirit falls on these people. Just falls on them. And it says they started speaking in tongues. And it's hard to make a theology out of this, and we've gone through this before in the book of Acts. Sometimes people spoke in tongues when they received the Holy Spirit, sometimes they didn't. So you can't make a theology out of it. Sometimes it does happen, sometimes it doesn't happen. And then it says, but, make sure they're baptized. Make sure they're baptized. So if you've not been baptized, you really ought to be. You really ought to be baptized. It's an act of obedience. So he has them baptized. But here the Holy Spirit fell on them. And it was amazing to the Jews. They had never seen this before. That's why I'm amazed that there's so many Gentiles that come to the Lord. Really amazed. I mean, how do you do this? You don't have the basis of the Scriptures or anything. And boom, you you receive the Lord. It's really amazing that there's all these Gentiles in the church. He said, you have to believe on Him. Well, what was he speaking about him that got these people so believing on him? He spoke of the resurrection of the dead. He said, he said that uh, um, in verse in verse uh, in verse thirty-nine of that same chapter, chapter ten, we are witnesses of all these things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on the cross, and God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. God raised up Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the most important thing of our faith. The most important thing. Paul tells us, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says that this is the most important thing of our faith. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, reading from verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So in other words, there's there's a way to believe that's in vain? 
He says, you've got to hold fast to certain things. Here's what it is. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance. That means the most important thing. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That is the most important thing. That we believe that Jesus was born, He died, and He rose again from the dead. We must believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many times I will ask people, do you believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because then I know, then I know where they stand. Many people will believe that Jesus existed, but that's not enough. We must believe that He's risen from the dead. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it says that we must confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that He's risen from the dead. When we believe in this Jesus, that He has lived and died and risen from the dead, forgiveness of sins comes. Forgiveness of sins comes. It is not the walk up the aisle that does this. That might be a confession. It is something that happens in the heart. There is no work that you and I could do to earn forgiveness of sins. This comes from Jesus. I am telling you, there are going to be times in your life where you so blow it, where you so do things that you thought that you would never do, say things that you thought you would never say, hurt people that you thought you would never do something like that. And remember, remember, you are not alone. To walk in an understanding of the forgiveness of God. I'm amazed at this man, David. This man, David, not only did he commit adultery with Bathsheba, this woman was, one of his, was the wife of one of his faithful servants, one of his faithful soldiers, who was out fighting a battle on his behalf. And then, in order to cover it up, he has this soldier killed. Not only that soldier, but several soldiers around him by having him placed in a place of ambush along with several other soldiers. Most human beings would never when confronted by their sin, as Nathan confronted him, when confronted, would ever be able to recover their place. Because they would be so convicted of their sin, they would think, that's it, I just ought to commit suicide, there's no use, there's no going on. But that man, but that man, could continue on. Because he understood forgiveness. He understood God's forgiveness. David understood God for God's forgiveness so that he could walk on in his life. But being a believer is not perfection, not at all. It is understanding that God loves me and He forgives me and I can walk in that forgiveness. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you receive forgiveness of sins. He is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word, the truth of it. Father, I thank you for this most important point of the gospel, which we take hold of, which we want to live under. That Jesus lived, he died, and he rose from the dead. And I thank you, Father, that he who believes in these things receives forgiveness of sins. 
Lord, thank you for that truth. Lord, I pray for these young people that you so work in their hearts to give them victory in their lives. So work in their hearts, I pray, that they would understand what forgiveness is and how to walk in it. Understand what it is to walk in the forgiveness of God, to receive your forgiveness in spite of their own sinful ways, to walk in your forgiveness, and to prepare their hearts for your forgiveness through repentance, coming and confessing before you, and turning. Father, your mercies be upon these young people. Father, cause them to stand, I pray. I pray good to be upon them, good lives. Father, I pray your grace to be upon them. Father, I thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen.